0: During this episode, I was on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to extend my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that they have cared for the lands, waters, and air for hundreds of generations and thousands of years. I'd like to kick off this podcast with just a shout out to LAWD. They've been a podcast sponsor since the very beginning for us. They're the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. If you want to find out more, check out the link in our show notes or head to lawd.com.au. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. And hello, Instagram. Good to see you. This week, I thought I'd take the chance to get educated on this whole foot and mouth disease piece. And I thought I'd share that with you all. So I'm sitting down with Andrew Henderson... Hendo's the independent chair of the Safe Meat Advisory Group. Think of the United Nations for um, red meat. Everyone across the supply chain, government, industry, you name it, they're there. And so what I thought I'd ask Hendo is, first of all, treat me like I know nothing. What's foot and mouth disease? How's it spread? Why is it a threat now? How long has it been a threat um, and on the radar of Australian ag? How would we deal with it? Um, what's the planning that's gone on in the background? So I think this episode, it's worth listening to. There's not a alarmist, cause for concern or anything like that. In fact, we've done a hell of a lot of work in the background but it's a good chance just to brush up on what's been happening, what would it mean for us and how uh, can you just be more vigilant and aware of what you can do as part of it. So enjoy this chat and um, would love you to share this one because I think it's a really important episode to help get uh, people more connected and informed on what could be a really serious issue but at the moment just something to be aware of. Hendo, we're talking about Andrew Henderson. Hendo, I think we'll call you it's far more casual when we're talking about su- such a serious topic like foot and mouth disease. But uh, Hendo, you're from you've got your own business Ag Secure. You're you're involved in I'm going to say you're the conduit between policy government businesses you somehow hopefully are able to decipher things from complex topics into simpler ones you're a part-time shed builder um but today i think we're, we're probably chatting to you with with your independent chair of the safe meat advisory group hat on but um hindo what's been happening you have obviously got this project the sheds underway last time we spoke
1: yeah yeah mate thanks for that But um i think there are a lot of people who are becoming part-time shed builders and carpenters and Diesel fitters and all sorts of stuff now that labour and everything's so hard to labourers and, and and skilled tradespeople. It's so hard to come by. But um, uh, we yeah, that's about it. So my AgSecure is is uh is just a, a consultancy business. is very small sort of business, but I do a lot of independent chair type work for the private sector, but as well as government, and then do a lot of work between government and industry. So basically, you're try and help government and industry work better together and understand each other. So. Um, probably the antithesis of the lobbyist business model, you know, where rather than convincing people that there's, there's some sort of mystique about dealing with government, that you try and educate, you know, private enterprise and industry on, on how to work with government, given my background, and then they can go and do it themselves. Because I think that's way more meaningful, you know, when industry is able to interact with government and vice versa, particularly bureaucracy, where 90% of the business of government happens. Um, But yeah, so today, talking to you, though, for my sins, i chair the independent chair of the the Safe Meat Advisory Group. So it's, what's what's a good way to explain it? It's like the United Nations of the red meat and livestock policy sector. So it's a big unwieldy group. Um, Every part of the red meat and livestock sector supply chain is represented, so all the way from uh, uh, grassroots production via the Cattle Council all the way through to live exporters and the processors, uh, including state and Commonwealth governments, as well as some regulators like the APVMA uh, and then all of your RDCs, um, AMPC, MLA, Integrity Systems Company, so on. And SafeMeat's role is effectively to advise on the policy uh, that sits behind and governs the industry's integrity programs. So that includes livestock production insurance program, NLIS um, and various other things that pertain to biosecurity, food safety, and hygiene so dealing with residues and all that sort of stuff basically everything that makes sure that your meat uh, on the shelf is, is safe to eat and that it's safe to be exported uh and, and maintain our you know very very clean green high standard in the international marketplace
0: and so i guess yeah i, I, I want to do a, a big old episode on you at some stage hand but how does how did you land in this field of work and what drew you in <laughs> Oh,
1: gosh, that is, ai don't know, it's a a long story. I don't know, I think things just sort of happen. One thing leads to another, but I've always had a background in agriculture. Um, So yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, my family comes off the land on my mother's side in central Queensland and grass-fed beef producers. And then, you know, I spent time up in the territory like a lot of people did after I left school and and then um, cowboyed for a little while over in North America and then uh, have done all sorts of different things and then got involved in politics. when I was trying to get serious with my life and um, got a job working for a backbencher and then came down, to, you know, obviously had a passion started to develop passion for ag- agricultural policy, got a job with Barnaby Joyce when he was the um, ag minister as a junior advisor when the government changed back in 2012 or 13 and then um, progressed through the ranks there and then finished up and started my own business in 2016. So, and then, yeah, kind of got asked sideways, got drawn sideways into the whole safe mate deal um, yeah, and there's a whole sort of backstory there too but um, I think that sort of came out, came as being seen as a fairly honest broker in, in in government being able to work across the aisle and all that sort of stuff and I think that was because I, I had a por- biosecurity portfolio when I was a ministerial advisor yeah. and I learned there that partisan politics has a, has, has little place in in biosecurity and so then, you know, you start to learn how to work across the aisle and get, get outcomes up the middle, you know, uh, so that's kind of a very rough <laughs> version of where
0: I live here. So. Well, I'm kind of like the perfect, uh, perfect career path for, for where you are now in terms of from the grassroots, a little bit of cowboying, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> and it like uh, with the whole biosecurity piece of Aussie ag, generally now there's plenty of different things happening. It's, it's not new, Um no, obviously no. the change the change of government too complicates things but without getting like too political let like let's jump into the whole foot and mouth disease piece because i think it's incredibly topical people that i've been chatting to both at a farm level kind of consumer level they're just trying to understand like yeah what are the cons- what should i be concerned about how could i act do i need to act or, or what can i do but i think if we spin it right back because i'll say i know bits and pieces but talk to me like i know nothing um yeah. What is foot and mouth disease? So
1: it's a it's a it's a very virulent virus that affects cloven hoof livestock species. Uh, outworks itself via sores um, in um, their hooves, around lips, uh, gums, and so on and so forth. Um, basically, results in fever, drooling, um, lameness, lethargy. Is probably harder they say to detect or, or visibly detect in sheep. Um, more obvious in in cattle and pigs and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, spread by, uh, via a few different vectors, including, you know, uh, via humans. We, we've all been hearing about, you know, mud and stuff like that, uh, virus living in people's shoes for a period of time. Uh, also, animal to animal transfers pretty common. Um, spread via breath uh, in animals. Uh, fortunately, it's different to LSD and that lumpy skin disease is spread via mozzies, which is much more of a concern because they travel so much further. So the disease can spread so much quicker than FMD can. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but importantly, it's, it's known because it's got such a significant impact um, in terms of devastating productivity and all of that type of stuff in the sector. And then, of course, the trade and market access impacts that go along with it too.
0: And so why is it you're talking about market access and kind of the damage that the disease could do? Why is it such a significant threat to the Australian livestock sector?
1: Well, it's, 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 it's a notifiable disease. So if we get an incursion of, of FMD, we're obligated to notify the World Organisation for Animal Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that you know effectively means that we'd be, because of the risk of transmission through meat and meat products and livestock, um, countries that might perceive themselves to have any kind of risk themselves of not wanting to get foot and mouth disease in, in internally in their border effectively ceases trade. So basically we lose our trade and market access um, straight away. And the process for regaining that trade and market access can can take a long period of time. And that's why the impact is, is quite significant. For a country like Australia, it's it's compounded because we export vastly more than what we consume domestically. Mm-hmm. So being an export leveraged country, we're, we're sending more than 71% every year of our uh, livestock and meat products um, overseas, and particularly when it comes to other products like wool, uh, which is also uh, affected, you know, 95% of wool goes offshore Um and, and dairy products as well. So uh, that's where the big impact is. And then the time it takes to regain that market access is, is a really big issue. So the process um, after, after, you've, after you've notified is effectively containment. Uh, you need to try and contain it as quickly as possible. So in a perfect um, scenario, you, you've identified the disease really quickly. Uh, you can contain it um, as quickly as possible. There's a zone set up, like a safety zone set up around where that original containment was. And then there's effectively an eradication program uh, that has to take place to get rid of any of those infected livestock. And then once you've gotten rid of all of the infected livestock, you begin a monitoring phase where you're effectively surveilling um, all of the surrounding areas and on heightened alert right across the country, basically, um, to to make sure that it's not going to be... uh, So basically make sure that hasn't spread because you've got a period of three months that you have to wait from when you've um, disposed of the last infected animal to when you can apply for freedom of FMD status um, to the World Organization for Animal Health. Now that's if you don't use a vaccination program, which we don't use in Australia, we can probably get into that more a bit later. If you do use a vaccination program, you've got to wait six months um, before you can apply. So the once you get, uh, so say you go through, you haven't used a vaccination program, you wait your three months, uh, since that last animal was destroyed, you've applied to the Organ- World Organisation for Animal Health and got your FMD free status restored, mm-hmm. then and only then your trading partners will begin the process of considering letting you back in uh, to, to, to their markets. And so depending on their level of perceived risk, uh, it could be up to years uh, before we get back into some of our major trading partners. And obviously that the impact of that's very, very significant.
0: Yeah, wow, okay. And like, cause people are saying it, it's never been a concern for Australia, but we have actually had we had foot and mouth disease in Australia back, I think it was the 1870s or yeah, thereabouts, yeah. 1872 maybe. Really yeah, trying to yeah. drill in on my <laughs> my uh, desktop expertise here. So like it has been in Australia previously. We managed to remove it. So how long has it been a concern for us?
1: Oh, forever, basically. Um, and and the thing to the thing to remember is that it's been you know, FMD flares up all over the world all the time. And, you know, it, it, we've got and the first thing to say to people is we've had, as we know, really robust biosecurity system that's done an incredibly good job of keeping FMD out to date. But, yeah, it's been 150 years since it was last year. Uh, it's been over 30 years since, since it was as close as it, as Indonesia. Uh, and that was back in the 80s. It was last detected in Indonesia. We were able to work with the Indonesians on a bilateral basis really <clears throat> closely back then to help them eradicate the disease uh which was successful because you know the further away we can keep it from our region um obviously the, the threat starts to decrease uh so we've been we've been really good for a long period of time at keeping it out um you know through the different pathways that, that it can come in on but um uh, it is definitely now uh, an increased
0: risk for sure and so at the moment, like chatting to people it's it's in so bali is obviously a concern because it's such a huge travel destination but yeah. it has been in that southeast asian area where a lot of people travel your thailand's your vietnam's malaysia but is the the real concern now just because of the number of people that are traveling to and from bali
1: yeah that that's right but also the, di- the difference between now and when it was last in indonesia is we're living in a very different world so there is a lot more people traffic um, you know, there's a huge uh, amount of tourism that takes place, <clears throat> probably more so than there was in the 80s. But beyond that, there are other critical pathways, including mail and freight, um, that, uh, that, that are vectors for the disease or pathways for the disease to come in as well uh, through meat and meat products and, and, and uh, animal goods and stuff. So we're living in a very trade-disrupted world. I mean, COVID has had a big impact on that, even the war in Ukraine, believe it or not, with regard to container shortages um, all of that's disrupted international supply chains, which, which means that, you know, our biosecurity intelligence um, uh, services or intelligence uh, capacity is, is working overtime to try and get a handle on where that risk uh, lies. So that's why, you know, it's, it's an increased concern
0: now, not just because it's so close in, ba- in Bali, but because there are a range of other factors that um, compound the risk as well. And so... With your work through Safe Meat and, and various others, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned like it's always been a concern. And I, I know of people who have travelled over to Nepal on kind of bursaries and different scholarships to actually look at it over there. And and even so, like I know during my time involved with the Future Farmers Network, like we were actually handing out bursaries or helping um, get younger people in ag over there so they could actually see the disease firsthand. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, what, what's been some of the the work that's happening in the background and how are we managing it obviously it's not just this thing like a COVID which appears it's um it's very well known and aware of so what have what have you guys been up to
1: ah uh, so the, well just in terms of how how to so there's the, there's the there's the governmental side of things with regard to the biosecurity continuum which we touched on before so that's your pre-border activities your at border activities which are the folks that are checking your luggage and yeah uh, and then there's and then there's your post-border activities um, the, you know it's important to mention too that the, the biosecurity officials and the systems doing a lot of profiling and intelligence work in the background which people don't often see on the ground in terms of uh, you know doing an analysis on individuals and all of that type of stuff as to, as to you know who, who does pose the most uh, the most risk and, and then making interventions on that risk-based approach. So there's there's the whole governmental side to biosecurity. Um, but safe work uh, and, and the work of the likes of integrity systems company, focuses mainly on the post water, which is a domestic um, you know, system as it pertains to traceability, national livestock traceability system. So as a part of our biosecurity, overarching biosecurity system, the NLIS plays a massive role, twofold, in ensuring market access because most of our major markets want to know that we can demonstrate the lifetime traceability status of our animals. So the NLIS is really important just on a day-to-day trade basis anyway. Um, But then secondly, in the event of an incursion of any significant disease, um, the the NLS is the mechanism by which we contact trace and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, are able to track and trace animals to make sure that we can identify uh, an infected animal and then the cohorts of animals it's it's interacted with as it's passed through the supply chain um, to be able to geographically isolate them, you know, as quickly as possible. So the other thing to mention, which I should have mentioned earlier, but, you know, if, if there is an FMD incursion, here not only do you notify your trading partners, you lose your market access overnight, but then there's an immediate national livestock standstill called. And that effectively halts the movement of all livestock um, across the country straight away. And so then that, that basically stays in place for as long as it needs to for, for authorities to feel like they've got the, um, uh, the outbreak under control. Now, the NLIS plays a critical role in that because that's the mechanism that authorities uh, are going to use to be able to find infected animals, draw a circle around those infected animals, identify all of the other animals that they've come into contact with, um, uh, from wherever they started to wherever they've gone, and then contain those outbreaks uh, as quickly as possible. So, the work of Safe Meat, um, part of the work of Safe Meat, but a very important part of the work of Safe Meat, has been making sure that those systems are strong and robust uh, and are as effective as they need to be. And we've done a lot of work around. Um, reform recommendations over the last, uh, well, five years, I suppose, since 2018 in particular um, to look at strengthening uh, the National Livestock Traceability System.
0: And so in terms of um, it, it's fully documented, hey, like in terms of if it comes into Australia, this is the action plan and it's very well known. Yeah,
1: yeah definitely. So, so, And then all of that information is available online too. So people need to go to, you know, it's called the OSVET plan. Uh, and and people can go to the Animal Health Australia website and and look at that. And that's the plan that sets out the response arrangements as agreed between the Commonwealth, the jurisdictions uh, and industry in the event of an outbreak of an emergency animal disease. And that includes physically what happens, who does what, all of that type of stuff, as well as um, cost-sharing arrangements, uh, compensation frameworks and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. Interesting. It seems like everything's a little bit more like front of mind in terms of you can, you can draw the similarities between the COVID response and...
2: Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more.
0: What this is?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one, one thing about COVID, it's definitely brought biosecurity into the brain for the general population in, in a way that it never has um, before. And 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 like COVID, like a global pandemic, FMD is a bit similar in so much as it was seen to be a low, maybe a medium risk, mm-hmm. um, similarly, uh, with but with a very high impact. Um, similarly, mm-hmm. FMD is a low, low risk. Um, you know, the the modelling that the Chief Veterinary Office officer has done uh, through his panel of experts uh, sits the probability of just around 12 12 uh, percent likely mm-hmm. an outbreak of fmd uh for me personally that's you know basically over a one in 10 chance of you know your business being upended which is still too high but effectively it's not um it's not massive massive probability but the impact is is really really significant so um that's that's the basis that means that we all need to be super vigilant and doing everything we can to keep it out. Because as we know, COVID has also taught us that if something can go wrong, it often does these days. It seems like um,
0: anything's possible. Absolutely, yeah. A little bit of uh, volatility um, Mm. around. And so in terms of, you mentioned before about a vaccine. So in terms of the response in Indonesia itself, vaccination is playing a pretty key part over there. So a, a vaccine does exist for the disease and that will does that protect kind of animals before they become infected or does it resolve the infection in infected animals?
1: No, I think my understanding, I'm not a, not being an expert on it, but my understanding is, is that it protects animals. So a lot of the live cattle that are going over from Australia to Indonesia are getting vaccinated as they're basically walking off the boat at the moment, which basically will help protect them um, from the disease. And uh, I'm not sure whether it prevents them from getting it as opposed to you know, like a uh, like COVID vaccine just lessens the impact of it, increases survivability and so on and so forth. But um, certainly vaccination plays a pretty massive role once you've had an incursion, if that's the way you decide to go. The challenge for, for us is because it's a live vaccine, if we start vaccinating but we haven't had an, a, a, um, an incursion of the disease, our trading partners will effectively say to us, well, if you, why are you vaccinating for disease you, you say you haven't got? We actually don't believe you, so we're going to stop market access. Um, so that's, that's the challenge associated with a preemptive, um, vaccination program.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, um, yeah, God, I'll say it's very political, but it's also very complicated. There's just so many layers to it. Yeah. Look, it's, it's a tricky business. And,
1: and because, um, you know, because Australia holds a lot of other countries to a very high standard of accountability when it comes to the products that we import from them, and we ask them to jump over a very high bar, it means that, those other trading partners will uh, not hesitate to ensure that they hide, hold us to a similarly high bar when it comes to demonstrating freedom from this stuff. So, look, the requirements—if you did use a vaccination program—that's why the, the the time frame from when you destroyed the last infected animal <clears throat> moves from three months to six months because the virus is, you know, obviously being a live virus. So, you know, it, it extends that period of time out that you have to wait. Um, uh to to in order to be able to apply for that declaration of freedom from from the world organization for
0: animal health yeah gotcha okay in terms of other things that people should be kind of thinking of like in terms of so at this stage it's nearly like a i think of it as like a, a bushfire it's a kind of a, a watch and act in terms of it we know yeah. that it's there there is a risk at this stage the risk isn't actually yeah. imminent for us so what should people be doing
1: well the first and foremost one benefit that's coming out of this whole scenario is that for those of us that work in the background of the system that walk around talking to people about how significant an impact of FMD could be, about the risk and why we need to prepare, is now that it's brought brought it to the forefront of everybody's mind. So it's a big opportunity to be able to say, "All right, across the sector, once we get past the you know the bit where we've sort of freaked out about it, yeah. um, now we now we get down to business. We get clear-eyed and really methodical." about making sure that all of our systems and structures are in place, uh, you know, post-border in particular, to be able to handle an incursion if, if it does get here. <laughs> so obviously prevention always being better than, that, than a cure. We need to do, you know, and, and hopefully are doing everything within our power to help the Indonesians uh, manage and ultimately eradicate um, FMD up there, but that's going to take potentially years. Uh, making sure that our border operations and intelligence uh, networks and all of that sort of stuff are functioning Um, as effectively as they need to, (coughs) encouraging individuals to make sure that they're taking responsibility for their actions when it comes to coming back from those places and and doing all the stuff like making sure that they follow the advice, make the necessary declarations, uh, so on and so forth. But as an industry, we have a huge responsibility to make sure that we are upholding and maintaining the systems and structures that underpin the integrity of what we do. And the, the benefit of this, this increased awareness is not just a preparedness, an increased preparedness for a foot and mouth disease. It means that we will have a really robust traceability and integrity system, which ultimately assists us to be really competitive and resilient in the international marketplace as well. So, God willing, COVID, uh, COVID FMD never gets here. Um, um, but if it does, uh, we'll be as prepared as we need to be for it, or at least we should be. Uh, and if it never gets here, then at least we will have made sure that we make the necessary improvements to our system, which will benefit all of us anyway. And a critical part of that is traceability. So for producers, you know, all over the country, traceability and your integrity uh, systems as they pertain to your on-farm operations in terms of, and, and particularly your on-farm biosecurity practices are really, really important. Um, you know, people sort of calling me saying, well, what, what can we do on the farm?" So, well, You need to to start making sure that you've got your on-farm biosecurity plan organised. All of this stuff, all of these resources are available through Integrity Systems Company, through the Livestock Production Assurance Program, Um, making sure you've got your biosecurity signs up, you know, you're monitoring who's coming on and off your property and where they go, Um, and making sure that you're fulfilling your requirements through the NOIS. That's critical. And, uh, you know, part of the reform process that we went through uh, and have delivered, um, that we went through with SafeMeet, uh, was delivering a series of reform recommendations to the National Biosecurity Committee, which is a committee of government, um, to strengthen the NLIS. Now, that was back in 2020, March 2020, just before COVID hit. We delivered this report that had five major recommendations, three of which um, or four of which really pertain to uh, or of most relevance to people. Firstly, we recommend recommended really centralising and nationalising the governance administration of uh, Australia's livestock traceability system. Very much a more of a back of house kind of recommendation that people wouldn't see necessarily on farm. Uh, secondly, we recommended that they invest into and create a database that's capable of managing all clove and hoop livestock species. So that's not just cattle, sheep and goats, it's alpacas uh, incorporating pigs um, <laughs> and camelids and, and, and what have you into the system because at the end of the day, we all sink or swim together. So if there's an outbreak in, a, in an alpaca, yep. <laughs> um, heaven forbid, it's going to shut down trade for the entire cattle industry as well. It, it's, so we all, we're all in the canoe together. Um, thirdly, and, and for producers, the most contra, uh, controversial recommendations being uh, to mandate the individual or digital electronic identification of all clove and livestock species. So that means sheep and goats as well mm-hmm. on the same basis. So, you know, and the principle being that um, the more accurately and effectively you can identify animals, then the more quickly you can contain, you can trace them and can, can contain an outbreak. The fourth recommendation pertained to creating an equitable cost sharing arrangement between industry and government to make sure that farmers don't bear all the cost of the system that it's shared evenly across the supply chain on the industry side, and as well as equitably between state and Commonwealth governments. Now, we're seeing a lot of debate at the moment about sheep, individual sheep identification. Uh, those recommendations are all aimed at making the whole system, including for cattle, work more effectively because ultimately, even outside of the context of an FMD outbreak, <clears throat> a really robust traceability system has a, many, many benefits, not only just facilitating trade from a day-to-day basis, but there's huge opportunity upside for, you know, capturing and unlocking latent value in the supply chain. Um, uh, but, you know, obviously the most pertinent one being right now, the the effective ability to be able to track and trace animals in the event of an FMD incursion, mitigate the amount of animals that need to be destroyed, contain the impact and ultimately get us back into our major markets as quickly as possible.
0: So in terms of um, like, I think, so a few years ago, I was part of a business and we were digitizing the vendor declarations. um, And yeah, we looked at the individual management piece and there was a project which was undertaken. And And so I think in terms of, for maybe people who aren't aware. So their individual management exists in cattle. It's been around for, God, yeah. it'd nearly be 20-odd years now, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and Victoria is the only state in Australia that has basically an electronic e tag in the animals so they can scan them, track them, etc. cetera. Sure. Um, yeah, so yeah. there was the sheep catcher piece. And basically what my understanding of it is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of if there's an outbreak because of the individual management side of cattle it can track it really quickly down to basically similar to COVID. Where, where where's that animal been? Who's it coming to contact? And then let's see where they've gone and who they've seen sheep because it's a mob based system. You're really relying on the paperwork being done well and accurately. And then from that though, like that sheep catcher trial actually really struggled to um, find those animals, didn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, and so we've subsequently done further exercises to test the efficacy of the, uh, the, the mob-based system versus how the Victorian system's been travelling. We did an exercise in 2020 where um, sheep catcher, the Sheepcatcher 2 exercise you're referring to in 2016, I think it selected a scenario of 60 sheep that were divided by uh, the amount of sheep or allocated to different states um, depending on the, and the amount of sort of proportional to the amount of sheep that they have in each jurisdiction. And then, um, and then each state was responsible for tracking and tracing those sheep. The exercise we conducted, uh, the evaluation we conducted in 2020, was uh, basically a live supply chain scenario where we went in and uh, traced uh, nearly well, about 2,700 head through a support, through a sale yard to to meatworks. Um, selected cohorts of, of sheep from <clears throat> uh, basically every state and territory, sheep producing state and territory. There are even some sheep that had come in. This was a, it was a Victorian exercise that we ran out of several sale, sale yards in Victoria that. Um, had sheep from Tasmania, South Australia, some West Australian sheep via South Australia and New South Wales sheep, as well as electronically identified uh, sheep and uh, from Victoria. And that, that exercise found that the electronically identified sheep were 99.64% from memory traceable back to property of origin within. Uh, I think it's 24 hours, which is what they call standard 1.1. That's, so that's the big one of the National Livestock Traceability Performance Standards. And that's the one you want to try and meet. You want, you know, and, uh, But um, the visual mob-based animals were approximately 30% less traceable than that. So that, that meant that there's a big gap. Um, and notwithstanding, too, there's a range of other challenges associated with the visual mob-based system. It requires a lot of manual verification. So, as you say, it really is reliant being paper based <clears throat> on the accuracy of the amount of picks recorded on an NVD. So, a lot of a lot of sheep producers know that you know you've got to record all of the picks that could be in well that are in the mob of sheep. I shouldn't say could be, <laughs> that are in the mob of sheep that you're consigning to wherever. Um, and in an effort to do the right thing or not fall or foul of the rule, you know a lot of producers put um, uh, put every pick they think it could be. On on the amount of sheep, uh, some people some people might decide to go the other way and put less picks because they don't want to want the sheep to be seen to be you know um, a, a necessarily a consolidated mob or something like that. But what all of that means is then you've just massively expanded the geographical area that contact tracers, let's say, have yeah. to have to try and try and track sheep on, and because they're in mobs, they're in groups, they, so so the numbers get really big really quickly. So <clears throat> we you know, we're in an environment where the human resources just don't physically exist to be able to manage a system like that. We now have the technology that's evolving and improving and the Victorian system has demonstrated that efficacy. So uh, hence the recommendation to move that way. Um, and, you know, there'll always be, you know, improvements required to it as we move forward. But, you know, electronic identification um, is is the next logical path a step forward in the pathway towards maximum traceability.
0: So I reckon on that, that well it's probably you know, the ideal scenario would be that it would be there now. But that's something which I guess people can get more informed yeah. on and and look at for sure because to me it sounds pretty um pretty logical really, doesn't it? In in terms of covering off a couple more things on foot and mouth disease. So the risk to humans is actually really low. It can't can't be transferred from animals to people
1: yeah um, i think look my understanding is there have been very few cases where where it has been but it's not got a any kind of
0: tangible impact and it's not considered to be a human health issue so so off that then why like if it can't be transferred to humans it's not going to infect the meat as such so why is it such a big issue because of the transmissibility <laughs> between animals
1: yeah and the and, the, and basically the, the production uh impacts that it has so it's so damaging to you to your um, to your productive capacity and and so you know countries naturally just don't want it in their in their in their system because it's it's hard to get rid of once it's there mm-hmm. um, we're probably well placed by comparison to less well developed countries in terms of our infrastructure and supply chain capacity to be able to manage get on top of and then eradicate an outbreak yeah there are a lot of countries that aren't Um, as sophisticated in the structure of their supply chains. And so, you know, it just hammers your productive capacity as a sector.
0: Okay. And so in terms of, I guess, yeah, parting messages, if there's anything else that we haven't covered, is there anything else that you think is worthwhile covering off at this stage?
1: Uh, Look, (laughs) just, just, just to encourage people to, you know, be alive to this stuff now that, you know, we don't need to be scared about it. Obviously we need to be very cognizant of the impacts. They're significant. There's no getting away from that we do not want it here, (laughs) Um, absolutely. And so the the next best thing to do is is to just get prepared and make sure that our systems are as strong and and robust as they need to be. And that means for a lot of producers um, being engaged with how policy is made because ultimately it's it's, it's our industry and industry organisations and representative organisations have a role in setting that policy. Uh, people getting involved in those organizations can influence that policy. Um, you know, if if folks are worried about the direction of the sector or the lack of preparedness, by all means get engaged and and you know, have a have a high standard of expectation from governments and industry around how biosecurity is treated uh, and funded and how well these systems are looked after because um, it's in all of our interests to make sure that it's because it's because it's biosecurity is a funny thing. It's like insurance in a lot of ways. Um you know, it's it's one of those things. It's very easy when everything's going well to think, oh, I just drop that off for a little while, you know. And it's it's happened um, around the country. Various governments, you know, of all persuasions and, and different levels, have at times increased and decreased resourcing associated with biosecurity. And we have to hold. We have to make sure as a sector that <clears throat> we 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 ensure that that funding is sustainable. That the appropriate you know um, the appropriate effort. And um, the apportionment of priority is, is placed on, on our biosecurity systems as well as an industry because of what it protects. I mean, that's we're just talking about the livestock sector here yeah. and say dairy and wool. But, you know, if we think about biosecurity and what it does, like in terms of plant pests and all that sort of stuff, there's trillions of dollars of intrinsic value across the biodiversity of the whole country that this biosecurity system protects. So realistically, we're super lucky being an island nation and how, you know, naturally protected we are geographically but having those systems and, and having people engaged in what that means is, is, uh, is really important. So definitely being proactive about this policy side of things is, is really important and taking, you know, because they, these, ultimately these are the systems that underpin our capacity, not just to prepare and respond to a disease incursion, they underpin our capacity to export and our capacity to export underpins the value of every single animal on our farm, on our in our, in our sector. We take away our export market access it's a completely different story, you
0: know. Absolutely. No, well, Hendo, thanks for coming on and explaining it to me. I feel like, um, yeah, it's been really beneficial with your background, being able to actually distill it and break it down in simple terms of kind of what it means. Well, firstly, what is it? What does it mean? Kind of what's been happening in the background? I think, yeah, the, the surety in, in all of this and the confidence that can be taken out is that it's not a new discussion topic. It's been no, around it's for not. a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but there's also... Plenty of things that maybe it's a, a bit of a wake-up call in some aspects yes. that there's plenty that everyone can do, whether it's mm-hmm. um, the tourists, but more importantly, actually kind of at the farm gate as well for yeah. people yeah. in the supply chain.
1: Absolutely. My view is it's just like what some you know financial guru, so when's the best time to start saving money it was whenever, yeah. 10 years ago. Well, the second best time is right now. So, you know, uh, there's there's no time like the present to make sure that our systems and structures are uh, are where they need to be.
0: Beauty. Well, thanks, Hendo for coming on for a yarn. And um, we'll make sure there's a few links in the show notes to um, not just your business, Ag but also where people can find um, a bit more info.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great to chat, Ollie. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. We hope you found it useful. If you have, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. We're back to sharing stories of extraordinary people, the real faces their stories, their experiences from next week. But we thought this was a really important subject to bring up and share with you. So if you're missing the stories as part of this week's episode, go back into the archive and find one of our old ones. Let us know what you reckon. As always, look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and reach out if you've ever got any stories or ideas.